Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. If you're the primary caretaker for a loved one right now, you might be feeling overwhelmed. Chances are you're also working full-time while you're responsible for the care of either a child or a senior, maybe both. More than half of all workers in the United States have care responsibilities outside their full-time jobs. That's about 90 million people, according to a 2022 report from Boston Consulting Group. And almost half of those caregivers rely on daycare or elder care facilities or paid in-home care. The rest depends on unpaid labor. That report says this is a care crisis, creating not only stress for individuals and families, but a huge loss to the nation's economy. So what are some possible solutions? How can we support caregivers and the millions of people who rely on them? Joining us for the conversation this hour is Nancy Fulbray. She's Professor Emerita of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her research focuses on care work. Nancy, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Deborah. Also with us, Michelle Allgood. She's Executive Director of Gracious Living Adult Day and Healthcare Center in Huntersville, North Carolina. Michelle, welcome. Hello. Hello, Deborah. Hello. Nancy. So, so Nancy, let's start with you. Uh, we know that there are some some really dire statistics, right, related to the amount of care needed for for elders, for children. Uh, tell us more about what the care economy is and what's needed to take care of of this growing number of people. Well, I think the biggest problem with the care economy is that. Uh, policymakers just don't provide enough public support, either for services uh, outside the home or um, for parents or family caregivers. And the basic reason for that is that there is this persistent tendency to view family care as though it's a kind of hobby, something that people do because they enjoy it, rather than as a real contribution to the overall economy. And I think that's the mindset that we really need to change. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I wonder, though, why aren't people louder about this? If so many people are affected, as we know, it, it's, it, it may be viewed as a hobby, but that could change if people were loud enough. So why aren't they? Well, first of all, I think people are getting loud and louder uh, because they're recognizing the root of the problem. But You know, we inhabit a culture that for centuries, basically, has treated care as women's moral responsibility. And we still live in a world where um, women family members are kind of the care providers of last resort. So um, it's very convenient to just say, oh, if we just hold back, if if we just... uh, um, if we just wait it out, they're always going to come forward and take care of it because of their sense of moral obligation and personal connection. And I think what's happening now is that that level of, um, you know, emotional connection and moral obligation is just reaching a burnout point. Mm-hmm. It's no longer sustainable. Right. 
Right. So, so describe what we're looking at right now. Like how, you know, certainly we, we've read by 2030, just six years from now, one in five Americans will be over the age of 65. Uh, some estimates suggesting one million more children under the age of five than there are now uh, by 2030 as well. So those numbers just keep going up and up. What are we looking at? What are we projecting uh, for this? And how do we how do we start to think about dealing with it? Well, uh, you make a very good point that care burdens are likely to increase in the future. I, I think it's also really important to point out that, that right now, a lot of care deficits are causing problems, a lot of stress for families, a lot of deprivation for kids, and a lot of harm to communities. So um, while I think things are going to definitely uh, make it worse in the future, I think just looking at the present right now... Um, we're seeing something of a crisis. There's major shortages of child care services and elder care services uh, in the U.S. today. And we're also seeing big problems in the related industries of health and education. Mm-hmm. So, so is there one that's more dire than the other? Which is worse, child or elder care? Uh, well, it's sort of like comparing apples and oranges, you know, Child care is very different from elder care. It's pretty easy to predict what a two-year-old needs in terms of time and effort. Um, you know, I'm 71 years old. My care needs are very unpredictable. Right now, I'm in great health. I might fall and break my hip. Um, so just because somebody is in their 70s or 80s doesn't mean that they need <clears throat> constant care. It's more the risk. It's For elder care, it's more the, the incredible risk um, of needing assistance that one can't obtain or can't or, or, or can't pay for. Mm. I want to bring Michelle uh, into the conversation. Michelle, as as we said, you are the director of Gracious Living Adult Day and Healthcare Center in North Carolina. And you're someone who who is part of what's called the sandwich generation caregiver, yes. right? Taking <laughs> care of both kids and uh, a parent at the same time. And and you that's how you really understand uh, this care economy firsthand. I understand you started taking care of your mom uh, after she had a massive stroke. You were, had three children at the time, and, and you had to leave your job. Tell us about what yes. that experience was like for you, and where where did you find resources to deal with all of that? Well, yes, and actually, Nancy said, it, said what I've been saying all along. No one at the time, no, and, and still today, no one cares about the trajectory of a woman's uh, career. No one cared that I was leaving a career that I loved and thought that I would retire from. Um, It was just uh, implied that I would take care of my mother. And, you know, I I did not have um, a lot of resources. Um, In my head, the thought was that I would uh, bring her home with us and I would be... um, everything, the superwoman. I take care of my kids, my husband and my mother um, with her varying needs. Um, and you'd work, I, right? And you'd get promoted. And, and, you'd... <laughs> and I would work. And, and, and I was uh. only ABP track, so I would be promoted. But, you know, I failed at all of that. And every day it became more and more um, <laughs> blatant to me that I was failing at everything. I felt like such a failure. Um, they're just, you know, I was tired. Uh, my self-worth was was going down because I, I couldn't really juggle work and 
caring for um, a new stroke patient. I mean, it it just, (sighs) it came to the point where I just knew I had to leave my uh, career. And then with my children, uh, trying to, um, I, I must say, it was easier for me to find a daycare situation, of course, with my um, one-year-old son, but um, not so much my mother. And I think that that was where I got the aha moment. It was like, okay, uh, if I could find a place where I could drop you know, mom off and also, just like I dropped my son off, That'd be great. So I tried to find uh, one, but it was 30 minutes away. um, And it just, it it was not bright and sunny like my son's uh, daycare was. It was very drab and and very sad. Um, And I think at that moment, it was like, okay, this can be done better. And this is so necessary because the um, resources just are not available. They're just not. Um, huh. Right. So it prompted you to, to do something, to take action yourself. Yeah. But before we get to that, can I just say, Michelle, I don't know that I'd say failing. It sounds to me like you were trying to do the impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I understand that. But it felt like failure to me. And and I, I, I hear it from so many other caregivers that are trying to juggle this um, this walk. I mean, they're they're walking along, but they feel like... They are failing at every moment, um, you know, to become even even de- sink into a depression. It's, it's not unheard of with caregivers. It just it's very difficult. I wonder, Nancy, what do you hear in Michelle's story? Oh, I just hear all of the contradictions that have have plagued us as a country for many years that we really need to deal with more directly. I think, you know, willingness to care for family members and community members is such a precious resource. But if you don't respect it and you don't reward it and you don't support it, uh, you're going to deplete it. People are going to begin just being forced to opt out of it. And um, that is, I think, the real heart of the care crisis. Mm. I wonder, Michelle, you did eventually uh, come around to, uh, you know, being able to make something really positive out of this experience and and taking matters into your own hands and creating adult daycare. Uh, How important is this, do you think? And and are you unusual or do you think that there is a, a growing understanding that businesses like yours are really important and there are more of them? Unfortunately, I uh, we are unusual. We mm. adult day and health is an invaluable alternative. Uh, it really is. Um, I've seen people be able to return to work, um, return, and mostly women. I'm not saying that I don't have some males, but mostly women. They're able to return to work, able to have a sense of self. Um, even to go golfing or just to, to have coffee or take a shower without um, a shadow. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, we have ha- found the need to expand. We're expanding to, to to three centers rather rapidly just because I have people that drive an hour and 20 minutes in the day, in the morning, so that they can go to work, 
they come back and drive another hour and 20 minutes, or it might be because it's evening traffic, an hour and 40 minutes. But this is what they're doing just so that they can have um, the career choice that they want or, you know, really provide for their families because many people are, um, because of the, the strain of caregiving, maybe have lost a spouse. Mm. Um, you know, they've decided to divorce because the spouse felt that they weren't getting what they needed. I see that a lot. Um, so, you know, we are, um, there are many, many, um, communities that don't have resources like adult day and healthcare. Okay. We're discussing the care economy and potential solutions. When we come back, we'll hear from On Point listeners about their challenges. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. Today, we're talking about what's called America's Care Economy in Crisis, and we're exploring some possible solutions. Joining us is Nancy Fulbray, Professor Emerita of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Also, Michelle Allgood, Executive Director of Gracious Living Adult Day and Healthcare Center in Huntersville, North Carolina. And Michelle, I just was wondering, because I feel like you told us that you were dealing with an awful lot. You were caring for elderly mom, your children, you ended up quitting your job and starting adult uh, an adult daycare facility in North Carolina. And there's an amazing demand and need for this. But I, I think our listeners would really want to hear from you is, is what did you do to, to prevent burnout? How did you replenish yourself when you were dealing with all of that stress? Uh, it... <laughs> How did I really at at the time that I was going through it, I just hit hit a wall. Mm. I think that um, once I hit the wall, I realized that I needed to focus on some self-care, even getting away. um, You know, if it was just for an afternoon, um, I I would request that my, my aunt, my mother, my mother's sister, you know, that she kind of come in if she could, you know, and sit with her while I just had a few minutes to myself. It was very difficult to find that space. And honestly, I don't think I had enough of it. (laughs) I just hit a wall. There was, you know, 
There's just not enough resources to figure out how you can carve out that uh, space for self-care. Are there potential or creative solutions that you've heard about that you think that might work? Or help? Maybe not work. Maybe won't solve it overnight, (laughs) but maybe help? Well, um, honestly, I found the most respite in adult day in healthcare. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm a huge proponent. And I mean, it is um, for nine of the um, 11 years, I really, I, d- I did not take a salary just because I felt so strongly about the work that we do. Um, just, I know that what we provide is a breather. We're, we're like CPR for the caregiver. Um, (laughs) we give them an opportunity to have a peace of mind while they drop off their loved one. Um, Really, we're going to have to have more um, resources like respite care. Um, There's a huge demand for even overnight respite care um, or weekend respite care. And and who can, who, yeah, who pays though? I mean, that's Uh, okay. Yeah, that's okay, the, my that's turn. The okay, your turn, Nancy. Well, yes. Who pays? Yes. Nancy, Nancy, Look, hit it. Policymakers, talk Look, about we it. Need, we, need, we need more public support for care. We yeah. have a public education system. It doesn't cover kids under the age of five. We have a Medicare system. It doesn't cover care needs that are not medical in nature. Uh, our capabilities, the capabilities of our children and the maintenance of the capabilities of our adults and elderly. This is a public good. It's really important to the well-being of the economy as a whole, and we should be providing more support from it for it. And there are many examples from other countries of policies that have really reduced uh, care stresses. And there are efforts underway in almost every state in the country to try and solve the problem with greater state spending. So I I just, I see it as a real political problem. Uh, It's not that we don't have a solution or that we need a more creative solution. The, 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 the challenge is to build political support uh, for a greater public commitment. But Michelle, who pays now? Currently um, we have a, private pay mostly, Um, but we do have a home and community block grant that does provide grant funding for some of our participants' families. And that she, um, Nancy has hit the nail on the head. She is spot on because what has happened is with that home and community block grant fund and any grants that are funded by the state or federal sources, they are... (laughs) They're not. There's not enough money in those buckets. Mm-hmm. Right. Just not. Um, we've had people on wait lists. Honestly, for this Huntersville site, we have uh, 62 people on a wait list that are waiting for funding through the Home and Community Block Grant mm-hmm. for our um, the new Nations Ford site, and which is South Charlotte and Pineville. We have other. Um, people who are also, you know, waiting. I don't know that. I don't have those numbers in front of me, but they're waiting for funding. Um, so these families are just holding their breath. They're they're hitting a wall, but they have to wait 
for that respite to come because they can't afford now. And we are the low cost alternative. Um, our most our families pay eighty five dollars a day from six a.m. to six thirty p.m. We have we provide breakfast, lunch, and a snack at three. Uh, but again. When you not you're not prepared to pay that on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you know, what what do you do? Right. You wait for funding, right. and there there is not. Right. Well, I want to I want to talk about uh, some uh, some of the other options and what they might be, and some of the ways that uh, some states are looking into uh, caregiving, both for elders and for children. Um, I have to say, eighty five dollars a day uh, sounds a little bit less expensive than child care i, I mean it it's just uh it, it just seems as if this is really putting the pinch on families in so many ways so nancy i wonder can you tell us you know uh aside from uh you know uh government grant funding or, or various things like that what what are you seeing out there in terms of what some states might be doing on either end of this, elder or child care, uh, to try to make sure that, that there is at least a push in the direction toward funding some of these initiatives? Um, that is a great question because I think um, there's uh, not enough kind of awareness and publicity around what some possible solutions are. So in terms of home and community-based care, the Medicaid program uh, allowed states to experiment with some new ways of dealing with elder care. And I think uh, the way that some states like California and Oregon have organized it is a really interesting model because they have made it possible to allocate some of those Medicaid funds uh, to support home-based care. So a family provider can actually get paid through the Medicaid program um, to provide care at home. And elder that, care, elder care, child care, yeah, any kind of care, both? Uh, not child care, okay, just but care of a, someone who is f- frail or, or disabled or needs, uh, needs help. Mm-hmm. But that Medicaid program is income tested, so it's only available to um, a very small percentage of the population. Mm-hmm. And it also involves a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork. So not everybody in those states is even aware of, of that option. But I think that uh, model of um, encouraging, supporting home and community-based care with a combination of public services and more support for family caregivers is a winning uh, combo. I want to bring up something that we heard about uh, in New Mexico, uh, and that is using some of the state's royalties from oil and natural gas to pay for early childhood care and education. This is apparently a, a land grant permanent fund in New Mexico, and it actually required a change to the to the state's constitution. And we spoke with uh, Kate Noble. She's executive director of Growing Up New Mexico, uh, which runs some early childhood uh, programs in the state. And what Noble said was that there was a lot of support uh, among folks for getting, uh, you know, more funding for early childhood. And they now get about $125 million in regular yearly funding for early childhood programs like pre-K. And she says this could also free up other state money. Uh, so let's listen to what she said uh, about potentially other states 
It is an elegantly designed fund that catches excess revenue from a bunch of different sources. When you prioritize early childhood and say, if we have extra money, we're going to put it in a savings account, in a trust fund for early childhood, that is a design that can happen anywhere, whether you have a land grant permanent fund or not, whether it makes sense to do a voter ballot measure or not. I guess I'd say get creative because this is popular. So, Nancy Fulbright, this is popular. Get creative. What about, uh, what, is, is that good advice to folks? And what about this idea of having, you know, a little bit of the oil and gas revenue or another source of revenue used to pay for some of this caregiving? I think it's a great example, and it, it really exemplifies um, the amazing work that people are doing all over the country trying to brainstorm about these issues. Um, I guess... Uh, oil revenues are only a real source uh, for some states right. uh, that have public oil reserves. And also, uh, uh, our utilization of oil and fossil fuels is going to be declining in the very near future as it has already begun to decline. So, I I would see that particular uh, strategy as a short-term solution. I like what's happening in Vermont. Uh, in Vermont, they have basically... Um, passed legislation establishing a very, very small payroll tax to be a dedicated source of funding for childcare. That makes a lot of sense to me, that employers should be helping pay the costs of building the next labor force, the labor force of the future. And um, by all accounts, that program is is uh, moving forward pretty successfully. Mm-hmm. Aside from Vermont, aside from New Mexico, uh, any other ideas out there that that are getting any traction or or even maybe not so much just a funding model, but what about increasing political support model? There are so many different uh, organizations that are really uh, putting their shoulder to the wheel on this, on child care, on elder care. In, in my view, what we really need is a coalition of advocates across the whole care sector, not just uh, young children, not just the elderly, but basically thinking about also about healthcare and education, because all of these parts of the economy are developing or maintaining human capabilities or human capital. And um, I think if we built a, a kind of uh, a coalition across different demographic constituencies, we would have uh, more political clout. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that if if you did have uh, political clout, do you think that we would see sort of examples uh, like or or programs like we hear about uh, in other countries where it would be almost guaranteed that we would have, in fact, uh, you know, support for caregiving? Absolutely. I mean, actually, a really good model is right to the north of us, Canada has moved towards a universal childcare finance model. They're kind of ironing out the the details, um, but uh, I think it's uh, I think it's the wave of the future. What about uh, government health insurance and and what it covers? And what about the idea of long term care insurance? When we're talking specifically about elder care here, um, are, could these programs be improved or uh, you know sort of expanded to right. cover more of this caregiving that we're talking about? Is there, well, is there any discussion about that? Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion because. Um, uh, 
you would think that private insurance would see this as a, a great uh, potential business model because there's growing demand uh, for elder care. But it turns out that private long-term insurance has not been very successful. And the reason for that is that it's very, very hard to predict who's going to need um, assistance. It's really hard to set premiums um, in a uh, efficient way for a, a private insurance company. If you're if you're offering, uh, you know, in health insurance um, to um, the current population, you can you can collect all sorts of data on who gets sick and how how much does treatment of their illnesses cost and so forth, and you can build a kind of, you know, model for setting rates. But you don't really know what twenty or thirty years in the future, <laughs> what the cost of caring for a uh, um, an elderly or disabled person is going to be. So I think the, the private market just can't really step into that role. So I think we need to think of it as a, a, a public insurance model that's kind of uh, uh, based on some universal benefits and some sharing of the costs um, so that uh, – we can design something sustainable in the area of public finance. And there are other countries like Scotland that have moved very much in that direction. Mm -hmm. if the private market seems to be very interested in, in nursing homes, right? Um, certainly, but, but maybe, uh, why is that different? Well, first of all, nursing homes uh, also get a substantial amount of money for Medicare and Medicaid. So um, a lot of what the uh, private uh, nursing home business is doing is basically taking advantage of what is already a public revenue stream, as it were. Mm -hmm. And what we see in the nursing home market is a very, very segmented market where if you're willing to pay and can pay privately, you can get really good care in a nursing home. But almost all of the nursing homes that have a pretty high uh, percentage of Medicaid-financed patients in particular are, are pretty low quality, and a lot of them are suffering from a big labor shortage because it's difficult for them to raise wages given the limits on the federal uh, revenue stream. So... So, so no insurance at this point. I just want to go back to Michelle in the, in the minute we have before we go to a break. Michelle, we have about a minute here. But is there any sort of discussion about having insurance coverage for elder daycare uh, and the services similar to what you provide? Yes. Uh, Long-term care does provide, um, you know, they, they will fund uh, their stays here on a per diem rate. Um, however, many of our participants' families did not prepare, and they don't have long-term care, and they can't get it now. Um, so, 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 so right now, it's, it's not an option right now, but, it, but there could be work toward that in the future. Correct. I see. I see. Well, Michelle Allgood, Executive Director of Gracious Living Adult Day and Healthcare Center in Huntersville, North Carolina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. We're talking about how to solve America's care crisis, and we'll have more after a break. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Deborah Becker. We're asking for your help with a show that we're working on for next week. It's about menopause. If you're going through it or you've had experience with menopause or even perimenopause, what kind of symptoms did you experience? Maybe hot flashes, brain fog, sleep troubles. Did you talk about it with your doctor? And how are you treating it, if at all? Share your experiences with us by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. If it's not on your phone already, just search for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Also, you could leave us a voicemail by calling 617 353 0683. Today we're talking about uh, potential solutions to what's known as America's care crisis. Joining us is Nancy Folbray. She's Professor Emerita of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And we've been talking about the U.S. and this crisis of caregiving for both elders and for children. We don't have enough of it and the demand is only going up. And it's very, very expensive. Some, many people, point to some international countries. They say other countries are doing this well, which of course raises the question, is this a cultural problem? Alana Buhl is an American parent living in Denmark. She shares her experience on the Instagram and TikTok accounts, The Luca Charm, and she says the United States needs to catch up to Denmark. Children and families are valued so much here, and you see it in like every aspect of society. Starting with pregnancy and birth, your healthcare is free. Tax-free funded, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're pregnant, you don't have to worry about not being able to afford your prenatal care or your hospital stay. There's a year of paid parental leave split between parents. From birth until children are 18 years old, parents get a stipend from the government to help pay for child-related expenses regardless of their income. Daycare and preschool are heavily subsidized by the government to be affordable for families. And why shouldn't we do all these things? You don't have to like children. You don't have to want children. You don't have to have children to acknowledge that the children are the future of this nation and of the world. And so, in my opinion, children, all children, should be given the best that we can give them. That's Alana Buhl, an American parent living in Denmark. I'm wondering, uh, Nancy Fulbray, when you hear that, when you hear all of those, uh, all of those things that are being offered to parents in Denmark, why isn't that being done in the United States? Um, I think I have a pretty good answer to that. Yeah, uh, and it's not about differences in culture; it's about differences in inequality. What do you mean? Well. In the U.S., we have a lot more income inequality than in Denmark, and we also have more racial ethnic divisions than they do. It's hard to get people to cooperate when they're in very different places or where they feel like they're at odds with one another. And um, what we see in the U.S. is that if you're an affluent family, you may dislike the price tag that you pay for child care and elder care, but it's available to you. The real problem is at the middle and the bottom of the income distribution, which is where public provision would make a, a difference. So 
you know, to think of it in terms of political coalitions, I think we're very split along lines of income and race and gender, um, as well as other things. And it's making it very hard for us to cooperate. Hmm. But it would seem as if it would be at least somewhat easier than other issues to sort of form a coalition around children and parents <laughs> uh, that would be more universal uh, and, and perhaps people could find some common ground. And um, Well, don't forget that, you know, because fertility rates are pretty low now, the percentage of households in the U.S., family households that have a child under the age of five is pretty small. It's about 14%. So um, it's I mean, the irony is that when, when there are fewer kids, it costs less to provide them with the resources that they need. But on the other hand, there are fewer households that have an economic stake in providing uh, public services. Hmm. So again, it comes back to not being able to get political support for things like they might have in Denmark that would help parents. Uh, and it's all about the political support. And without it, there's not much we can do. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good summary. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's without it, there's not much we can do because without it, that means we need to really work on 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 developing it. Hmm. Uh, I mean, talk about the need for creative solutions. That's where we really. That's what we really need there. One idea uh, that we've heard about is uh, paying folks to actually take care of of uh, their parents uh, or children under five, uh, especially. There was a 2021 survey uh, by the conservative think tank American Compass. And in that survey, 53% of married mothers said they would prefer to have one full-time earner and one stay-at-home parent while they were raising kids under five. Uh, we don't know how many uh, moms were surveyed here, but overall this was about 1,100 people, almost 1,200 people, who reported being a parent or guardian. And Oren Cass, who's American Compass's executive director, said that you know you could you could help a lot by sending a monthly check to working families with children. And this would really help, you know, alleviate some of the burden on these families. Let's listen. You want to make it higher for younger kids because that's both when the, the costs tend to be highest and, and when you're most likely to have parents spending significant time out of the workforce. So we propose something on the order of $400 a month for children until the age of six and then $250 a month once children are, are six or older. And so, uh, you know, a family with two or, or, or three kids could be receiving upwards of $10,000, which would go a, a very long way toward certainly covering the cost of childcare if, if that's what the family wants to do, uh, but equally making up lost earnings if, if you have a parent staying at home, which, which we know is what most families would prefer. Nancy Fulbright, what do you make of that? First of all, the idea, uh, you know, that uh, from American Compass about this and, and, you know, $400 a month for children, up to $10,000 a year to support families. It's a good idea. Do you do you really think that Orrin Cass invented this idea at American Compass? No, I, mean, I do not think he invented <laughs> the idea, but he's talking to us about it and he's outlining well, but the, it. For us. But I would just like to point out that the, the this is exactly what the Biden administration did with the mm expansion of the child tax credit. And it was Republicans in Congress that basically discontinued the expansion of the credit, which in term, in quantitative terms was quite similar to what Orrin Cass is calling for. So I, I do like Orrin Cass's ideas. I think he's 
a minority um, within the Republican Party that has been willing to argue for more economic support for families. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that the Republican Party overall is very, very resistant to any such policies. Mm -hmm. What about the policy itself? What about paying people to take care of, you know, you know helping people, subsidies? I mean, there, there are various yeah, yeah. pilot programs going on around the country uh, along these lines to, to help low-income families in general. But, uh, I mean, could it, could it work? And, uh, or are we just way too divided to even be thinking about things like this? Well, we, we already have something like that with the child tax credit, which is now $2,000 per child. And under the Biden American Rescue Plan, it went up um, to almost $4,000 per child. And yes, I think that should be a big part of the overall package of family support because we want to give people a lot of flexibility and choice. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think it should be traded off against the provision of child care services or elder care services. I think we need to think about the overall package um, in putting it together and not, you know, I think right now the partisan divide is, is very much um, around the issue of providing more public services um, and kind of playing that off against um, more tax credits uh, for families. So, um, I think uh, it's definitely an idea that we want to move forward. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about uh, sort of other kind of maybe outside-the-box proposals, uh, maybe intergenerational cohabitating communities? Are, is there any kind of support for this? Are you hearing about anything that you think uh, maybe is starting out small and could be replicated. What, what would you say about those ideas to kind of solve maybe housing, childcare, and elder care all in one community? Yeah, I think I, I really like the communitarian imagination around that kind of intentional communities and, and um, trying to, to rethink the way our housing um, system is, is structured. I think it's right now it's kind of a boutique movement that you can find good examples, but they tend to be kind of small um, and mostly in college towns. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they're, they are really performing a valuable service in, in kind of getting people to rethink our current um, living arrangements um, and housing arrangements. Um, Right. So, so they're valuable, but but uh, they're small scale at this point, and we don't know if there will be support for them to to be uh, modeled on a larger scale. Yeah, and look at if just look at the tensions between a plan like that and the way economists usually talk about the economy. You know, in general, economists really like the idea of labor mobility. It's really good if people can go to where the jobs are, and it's good to have. Um, uh, you know, that kind of individual flexibility that everybody can find uh, the job that they need. Well, um, these are, are kind of economic pressures that make it very difficult to hold families and communities together. And one of the things we've seen is that in rural areas, the younger generation has basically left home because all of the decent jobs are in big cities, right? So that's, that's a kind of economic force that makes it very difficult to see this communitarian strategy working on a very large scale. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think are some of the consequences of of not taking action on this? I think the the way to think about it is the same way that we think about climate change. Hmm. Climate change, it's very hard to see exactly how much it's going to cost, right? Because we don't really know. It's hard to measure the, the specific causes and the specific consequences. And yet what we're learning, um, and we're learning better every year, is that these kind of diffuse effects in the public environment end up causing meteorological problems that are extremely costly in terms of, of uh, impact on agriculture, impact on hurricanes, uh, impact on, on public health, the spread of disease, so forth and so on. So the care problem is similar in that it's, a, it, it's about protecting and, and kind of um, improving the public environment and it's hard to get people um, to actually recognize the economic benefits because it's hard to put a precise dollar value on what person A contributes to it or what person B contributes to it. Mm. So I think we need to recognize that the social climate is really key to our economic prosperity and that good care provision is really central to our social climate. Uh, when we can't provide the care that our families need, it's not they're not it's it's not just the families that have care needs that suffer. It's everybody who's living with them and and living in this situation where people are 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 like Michelle in her really poignant description are really stressed out and find it difficult uh, uh, to kind of hold their lives together. Hmm. I wonder, wasn't this always an issue, or, or at least for decades now, right, that there, that child care has been an issue, elder care has been an issue, but there's certainly a lot more discussion about it now. Is there, is there, are people more willing to talk about it? Is there more awareness, or is there a bigger problem? I think it's mostly that women now have more political bargaining power, frankly. I think one of the reasons we didn't have a care crisis in the past was that women were really strongly discouraged from doing anything but taking primary responsibility for care provision. And, you know, that's changed. And I think that's a good thing um, for obvious reasons. But it, it also means we need to renegotiate uh, care responsibilities. And uh, it's hard. That process of renegotiation is, is pretty fraught. It's pretty difficult. Mm. And percentage-wise, are costs so much more higher now than they were, say, 20, 30 years ago? Well, we didn't measure the costs because a lot of the costs were in unpaid work. Uh, and we've only, I mean, actually, this is the area of research that I kind of specialize in, is looking at the amount of unpaid work time that goes into the care of dependents and what it would actually cost if you paid somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it turns out the cost of raising a child is really huge not because of paying for childcare, but because of the way in which it reduces a family's ability to earn income. So, so um, give me a ballpark. A ballpark of cost. It's really huge. What does that mean? Well, let's see. Uh, about half of all work in the U.S. is unpaid work, mm-hmm. and you, I'm defining work as work that 
somebody else could in principle be paid to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's not all childcare, but a lot of it is childcare and elder care and related things to that. Uh, some of it's housework, uh, you know, cooking dinner, taking out the garbage. It's half, half of all labor time. Okay. So basically, uh, depending on the wage rate that you wanted to assign to that unpaid work, um, it, it, you know, the economy almost doubles in size when you take that unpaid work into account. Hmm. So it's huge. It's significant. We've, yeah, yeah. And we've got a lot of work to do, it sounds like, uh, <laughs> to, yeah. to be able to address this. And uh, we, we've, uh, we've spent the hour talking about it, and uh, we've talked about potential solutions, but it sounds like there's a lot of work ahead. Nancy Fulbray, Professor Emerita of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, thanks so much for being with us uh, today, and I'm sure we'll be uh, talking about this again. I'm Deborah Becker. This is On Point.